We sing, we want to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. It was the question to which the apostles asked in Matthew chapter 24, Lord, tell us what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age. And if that's what you long to see, then you get a glimpse of the shakedown in Revelation chapter 19. <coughs> Beginning uh, in, uh, in chapter 6 with the marriage supper of the Lamb and then continuing on to the uh, description of Christ at His second coming. The bride in tow for the salvation of His people and the destruction of His enemies. But it doesn't happen out of a vacuum. That's why the apostles were asking. I find it interesting when you consider kind of the predominant dispensational view of eschatology that we have in America today that people wouldn't scratch their heads and wonder when the apostles come up to Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and say, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus didn't say, well, there won't be one. Just one day, you'll be gone. But that's not what He said. And we've seen that unfolding throughout the Scripture. If we look in the Revelation, if we want the immediate context, we really have to go back to chapter 12 where we see this kind of parenthetical section. John has been being shown the unfolding events of the apocalypsis He's been seeing the, the way that all of this is going to unfold in the last days when lawlessness has come to its full before the second coming of Christ. And we get this pause in chapter 12. And we go all the way back to the beginning of enmity and this war that is existing in heaven. And man, just like what we were talking about this morning, if all you see is what is going on among men on the earth, it is the equivalent of walking into a forest, seeing a mushroom pop out of the ground, and thinking that is the totality of what a fungus is. What's underneath and what is unseen is infinitely more. And so we see the beginning of the enmity, the war between the ancient serpent of old, the dragon, and his desire to come against his sovereign creator and to destroy the promise of the Christ that is to be given. It takes us all the way up to Satan being cast out of heaven and cast out to earth in great anger because he knows his time is short. His intention at that point in time to go after the people of Israel and cut the promise off at the very base of the vine. But the Lord provides for them and shelters them away until such a time that has come that the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, the Jews have been provoked to jealousy, and grace can come to them. Quite frankly, at that moment in redemptive history, you can put a lot more pressure on the Gentile church than you can put on the Jews because the Gentile church is born again. They are filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to be able to do the things that God requires of them to do, whereas the Israeli people cannot. Not yet. We leave the parenthetical section with a simple statement that they will be given over into His hands. And this is a call for the faith and the endurance of the saints. And then we see the seventh bowls with which is the last. The description of the great harlot, her destruction at the hands of the beast, and then with nothing left to do except for destroy His enemy and save His people, we see the hallelujah courses that accompany the marriage supper of the Lamb. And a bride 
that has been made bright and pure, prepared for her husband and all of the glories that go along with it. And having taken his bride to himself, having seen the resurrection of those who have died before in Christ and the rapture of those who are left alive at his coming, the, the, the judgment seat of Christ by which everything that is wood, hay, and stubble is burned away and only the thing of gold, silver, and precious jewels that are the work of God Himself is left behind. We see Him return with His glorified saints. The very thing that will provoke the people of Israel to jealousy when they see the promise that was supposed to be theirs. And He will open a fount for them of grace and pleas for mercy and a nation will be saved in a day in a moment when He comes for the salvation of His people and the destruction of His enemies. It plays out in Revelation chapter 19 beginning in verse 11 through 16. And it says in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse and the one setting on him is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. I, I love the fact that the, the narrative and the description here speaks about the glories of Christ and the titles of Christ and yet never specifically uses the name of Jesus Christ. You don't need to if you have, unless you're one of those people, and unfortunately, unfortunately, I think some of the ways that we get a lot of kind of bad eschatology in our churches today is we do have a lot of people that don't read the whole book. They just want to skip to the end and learn these things. And so if you've read the whole book, there is no doubt in your mind who this is. We know who the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is. We know the one that comes riding on a white horse with eyes like a flame of fire fire and crowned with many diadems and a robe dipped, yea, splattered in blood, followed by the armies of heaven and protruding from his mouth a two-edged sword. This is the one who is called faithful and true as being identified as Christ in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. The one who is here called the Word of God as identified as Jesus Christ in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The one who is called the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ is identified by Paul writing to Timothy in his first epistle in chapter 6, verse 15, and then once again in the Revelation in chapter 17, verse 4. He has a name that no one knows but himself. The being of Christ is infinite and beyond the understanding of men. He comes in this moment in the fullness of His glory, having taken His bride to Himself. He comes to judge and make war. And He does so in complete righteousness. Complete righteousness. What is happening here has actually been described in detail 
780 or so years before by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 63. And once again, you know, the, 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 the Holy Spirit inspiring the authors of what we call the New Testament today um, not even really still sure if that's the best designations, Old Testament and New Testament, but that's what we've inherited. So for now, for the sake of uh, for for the sake of you know ease and clarity, we'll call it that. The Holy Spirit inspiring the writers of the New Testament expected not only a knowledge but a fidelity to the content of the inspired Word of God from the Holy Spirit that had came before. Now, when we say that, that sounds pretty simple. I mean, if the Lord has been speaking to His people and He has been giving the Word of God to His people through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through His prophets, that His people may have His Word, and He has been doing this in written form since 1500 B.C. with Moses, then when the Lord continues to speak through His apostles and His prophets, in the first century A.D., the expectation would be that the people that are receiving this would be well-versed in all of the things that came before and often were not. Often, we want to take the... uh, We want to develop a humanistic theology that's based solely on the New Testament with very little consideration what came out of the Old Testament and then get confused when our theology doesn't seem to match the theology of Scripture that had come before, and we want to blame it on Scripture instead of blaming it on ourselves for using an incomplete set to try to come to a mathematical answer, and it doesn't work that way. What you see in Revelation chapter 19 in the description of Christ's coming in the judgment of His enemies and coming for war for the salvation of His people, of Israel specifically at this standpoint, has been written volumes on by the prophets that came before John. That doesn't belittle John. I'm saying it supports the case. It's like we looked with Amos and we looked at the prophets that came hundreds of years before him. They're all speaking by the same Spirit and therefore they're all saying the same thing. And so in Isaiah chapter 63, in verses 1 through 6, we see the description of the coming of the Lord that John is speaking of in Revelation chapter 19. In chapter 63... In verse 1, he says this, Who is this that comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. And so my right arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger and I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. 
Here's a prime example. We look forward to Revelation chapter 19 and we see the Lord Christ coming in the splendor of His glory and for the derision of His enemies, this sharp two-edged sword that goes forth from His mouth and He's riding a white horse and He has this robe dipped in blood. In the first place, our brain goes because we've so often been removed from what the Holy Spirit had said back here in the quote-unquote Old Testament is here is Christ coming in a robe dipped in blood and that's His blood and that's the blood of the cross and that's the blood of salvation. Friends, it is the blood of salvation, but it is not the blood of the cross. The robe that Jesus Christ is wearing at His second coming is not a robe that is dipped in His own blood. It's one that's splattered with the blood of His enemies. For the day of vengeance was in His heart. Man, and you talk about vengeful. You're talking about a guy that has just taken his bride to be with him. The... The, the prize of His suffering. And here you have that which has stood against Him and stood against Him by coming against her from the very beginning. And would at this very moment, if, if they were not halted by His authority, still be seeking to cut off Israel through whom the promise has come to her. They're messing with the wrong king's stuff. And he is violently angry. And as as righteous as anger can possibly be. He's violently angry. He said, I trod them down in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. Now how crazy is that statement? Okay, fine. You're messing with his bride. The, 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 The fullness of lawlessness has been displayed. The dragon has been cast down. He's entered into the Antichrist. He is literally, we have moved past total depravity and we have achieved for the first time in man absolute depravity. You have a man who is absolutely as bad as bad can possibly be. And so the hour of judgment has come. But when he says this, he says this day of recompense, this day of judgment was in my heart when he says that he was coming with great wrath in what he was doing. He trod them down in his anger and trampled them in his in. In, it, in my wrath, their lifeblood spattered my garments and stained my apparel. Why? For the day of vengeance was in my heart, well enough, and the year of my redemption had come. And even in this moment, even in this moment of, of, of holy wrath, Christ still has the intent to redeem something that belongs to him out of the midst of these things. And he's willing to get the sword out and spatter the blood to do it. As a matter of fact, it turns out Isaiah chapter 63, because once again, if you're going to speak by one and the same spirit, not only do you find all the prophets being in agreement with each other, but you also find individual prophets saying a lot of the same stuff over and over and over and over, you will notice that Christ does the same thing. He goes around declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. And He doesn't do this once. He does it over and over and over and over because repetition is one of the great mothers of learning. And so Isaiah has spoken on this before at quite a bit of length. Back in chapter 34. 
And so we're going to read quite a bit here. Draw near, O nations, to hear. And give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood, and all the host of heaven shall rot away. Okay, now back to what we were speaking about this morning of the spiritual reality that lies behind the kingdoms of men. When you look at the great powers and the great kingdoms that have come out of the earth, that have come out of men, it's not just about men. What you see here is the proverbial mushroom. It's the part that pokes its head up that's visible. There is a whole lot more to it that is dictating the terms by which the mushroom actually exists. There are the princes and the kings of Babylon and of Persia and of Greece and of Rome. And here God addresses both. He is angry with the nations. This is the term that would later be translated as Gentiles when we move into the Greek. He's angry with the nations. He's angry with the world. That pretty much means everybody except the people of Israel who are His portion. He's angry with them. And because He's angry with them, justice and vengeance is coming. And He's going to trample them down. And He's going to hand their hosts over. The number of their people, He's going to hand them over to the slaughter. But that's not all this is about. It's not just about the host of the nations, the men here on earth. It's about the host of heaven that are partnered with them in lawlessness. The power that is behind them that has allowed them to do this thing. And on this day, the vengeance of the Lord is going to go all the way to the top. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away. The skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fail as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted for destruction. The Lord says that He is beginning with the spiritual reality that is behind these things and then He is bringing judgment upon the expression of it amongst men. And where does it come? It comes to Edom. Specifically, to Basra, the capital of the people of Esau the godless man to whom God would not grant repentance though he sought it with tears. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls, their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soul shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance and a year of recompense 
for the cause of Zion. What you're seeing here is motivated not at this moment, not by specifically the love for the bride. He's already taken her to himself, white and pure. What he's dealing with now is an affection and a care that he has for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What we're seeing right here is recompense. It is vengeance. It is the great I told you so about making a promise to the house of Jacob. The Lord has a day of vengeance and a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur and her land shall become burning pitch. Interestingly enough, right on the borders of Edom is a small patch of ground that this has already happened to. On the eastern border of Edom, on the plain, is where Sodom and Gomorrah once stood at the foot of the Dead Sea. And it has rivers of pitch. smells like a rotten egg and is covered from one end to the other in sulfur and salt and burnt carbon. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever, but the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it, the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns, and I, I would, my personal thought there is that would include both its human princes and its angelic princes because he's already called out the host of both in this deal. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its forest. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. The wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow indeed. There the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed there the hawks are gathered each one with her mate seek and read from the book of the Lord man seek and read from the book of the Lord not one of these shall be missing none shall be without her mate for the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them he has cast the lot for them his hand has portioned it out to them with the line they shall possess it forever from generation to generation they shall dwell in it notice when the Lord in his coming in the day of his vengeance when his wrath upholds him for the cause of Zion, when He is coming to Zion, He is not coming. He's not coming from the Mount of Olives. He's coming from Basra in Edom. Now, this is where, once again, this is what happens when you try to take your theology from the end of the book and don't read the whole book. Right, So we have this idea, you ask the average Christian today, if they know enough about eschatology to say, when the Lord Jesus returns, where is His feet going to touch down? And they're going to tell you the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is going to be split from top to bottom 
when his feet rest on the Mount of Olives and the Lord is going to make a way of escape for all the people that are being so horribly oppressed even to the moment of absolute annihilation in Jerusalem when demons are crawling over the walls to, according to the minor prophets and the city is split into three parts and the only people that are that have not taken the mark of the beast are just crammed up in one corner waiting for their imminent annihilation. And that day, Christ will stand on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives will be split and there will greater than the earthquake um, that we've been looking at in Amos, uh, the, the word says, and there will be a way of escape made for the people of Jerusalem and the Lord will tread the winepress of His wrath outside the city gates when right before Christ comes into the temple in His glory. All of that is true. Here's what's not true. The assumption that 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 is where it begins. And because it says He will do this, because it says on that day His feet will rest on the Mount of Olives, we've made the assumption all too often, when I say we, I don't mean here at Mount Zion, but kind of the bigger picture. The bigger picture of the church in the United States has made the assumption that because that's going to happen, it begins there. And they made that assumption because they only read the back of the book. And when he comes with a robe splattered in blood, he didn't come directly from the wedding supper of the Lamb. Man, that's all that's all purification of, of, of the judgment seat of Christ in glory and and, 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 and dressed in white and, and, and beautiful and, and splendid righteousness. No. Somewhere between the marriage supper of the Lamb and standing with his feet upon the Mount of Olives is the events that occur in Basra of Edom. And they are a bloody mess. But, why? Why? Why Basra? Why Edom? Why not somewhere else? As a matter of fact, the, the battle with the Antichrist proper is not going to take place there. We know where it's going to take place. It's going to take place at the Valley of Megiddo. So why go to Basra first? For the same reason, in Revelation chapter 12, when the dragon tries to go after the people of Israel, he goes, nope. You can't have them. They're not ready been ordained by the Lord written in the book of Daniel to give the saints of the Most High over into His hands for a time, time, and half a time, but they can handle it. They can handle it because they're indwelled by the Spirit, they're empowered by the Spirit, and when they fall by the sword, they go to see Christ face to face. At the end of the day, dying for them is gain. You can't do that with a bunch of unsaved Jews because dying will not be gain. The dragon comes after him and goes, uh-uh. It actually says that the earth came to the aid of the woman in some manner. It doesn't tell us specifically how. It says it swallowed up the river that the dragon poured out of his mouth after her. Somehow the earth came to her aid. And here, for her sake and for her cause, for the cause of Zion, when the Lord returns, the first place He goes is not the Mount of Olives, and it's not Megiddo. first place He goes is Basra. And he's going there for her because this isn't just a day of vengeance. It's a day of vengeance and the beginning of a year of redemption, he says. He continues in chapter 35. The wilderness and the land shall be glad. 
Okay. Kind of taking a different tone here. The wilderness and the land shall be, and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Strengthen the wake hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come to save you. We don't know the details of what's going, in Basra, what's going on in Basra, but what we know is this, is when he goes there and um, splatters his robes with their blood, sates his sword with their blood, and the globular fat of their kidneys... He's doing it for them. And He's doing it for their salvation. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Guess what? When Christ comes to save, it's effectual. It works. What you're seeing here is the unfolding of when provoked to jealousy, I will open a fountain for them for, of grace and pleas for mercy and give them a new heart. This is this is that happening. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, and He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. Because man, he is treading a path that leads from Basra north by northeast, north by northwest, excuse me, He's coming from south by southeast. That's going directly to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem to tread the winepress of the wrath of God the Almighty. A highway, a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness because He is making this people holy. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any of the ravenous beasts come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and singing and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This day, when the fount is opened for the house of Jacob. You are seeing their salvation unfold as He is destroying their enemies and leading them, literally leading them to Zion. And having done so, securing his capital and 
saving the people that are there, he proceeds to the final blow. I saw an angel standing in the sun. This is Revelation chapter 19, verse 17. With a loud voice he called out to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered together to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in, the pre- who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. What we see here is not discipline. This is wrath. This is judgment. This is punishment. This is recompense upon sinners by whom a holy God hates. The Word of God accomplishes His wrath by the sword that comes from His mouth. As Isaiah said in chapter 11, verse 4, but with righteousness He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth and with the breath of His lips He shall kill the wicked. Or as the author of Hebrews wrote, for the Word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. As Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together or don't depending upon the purpose of His will. Here we see Him hold His people together in spite of incalculable odds and destroy His enemy at a word from His mouth. All for His own vindication, the glory of His name, the salvation of His people, the heart that He has for His bride, and the promise that He has made to Zion. What an incredible day of victory, man. Just, I mean, you talk about you talk about balancing the books. I mean, it's a big day. He's not done yet. But we are for now.